You've seen the movies. But you haven't read the comics? What? You think the comics are inaccessible? That's Steve Vinson. That's Paul Schultz. And we've got issues. Rorschach's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Dog carcass in alley this morning. Tire tread on burst stomach. The city is afraid of me. I have seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains are finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up about their waists, and all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us! And I'll look down and whisper, No. They had a choice, all of them. You could have followed in the footsteps of good men, like my father or President Truman. Decent men who believed in a day's work for a day's pay. Instead, they followed the droppings of lechers and communists and didn't realize that the trail led over a precipice until it was too late. Don't tell me they didn't have a choice. Now the whole world stands on the brink, staring down into bloody hell. All those liberals and intellectuals and smooth talkers. And all of a sudden, nobody can think of anything to say. Okay, so this whole business that we've been working on here has led to this. <laughs> the one that started it for me. <laughs> for many decades, you've tried to get me to read comics. And then one day, this shows up on my doorstep. <laughs> a little book I like to call Watchmen. I had to secretly uh, message your wife and ask for your address because I, I didn't want you to know. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I cannot even remember if there was a conversation ahead of time. like, Or did this just show up? In my mind, I want the lore <laughs> to be that it just showed up on my doorstep. And I was like, what's this? At the very top, it says winner of the Hugo Award. Mm -hmm. And I had read another book that had won the Hugo Award and loved it. Then this says one of Time Magazine's 100 Best Novels. I believe at the time I, I was on a quest to read a lot of the things that I'd missed out on because <laughs> I did I was not well read in high school and stuff. I only read what I needed to read to get A's so I could be valedictorian because that was the goal. And one of my friends who had majored in American literature gave me a list of, well, you got to read these things. <laughs> and a lot of them were on the, you know, Time Magazine's 100 Best Novels list. And then you sent me this and I was like, oh. Well, if this is on Time Magazine's 100 Best Novels, I guess I better read it. And it was that moment where I was like, uh, I guess I like comics now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, you know, this, this started it all and it's going to end it. <laughs> you know, this is part one of a two-part homage to Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Mm -hmm. And the, the art's great. The story's awesome. By now, I, I doubt, unless you've been living under a, a rock for the last 10 years, by now you've seen at least one adaptation of this novel, <laughs> uh, either a movie or a series. Yes. So you, you get the gist of the story. So we may not, in this in this episode, we may not get as much into you know the details of the synopsis of the story. We'll give the general overview. But you all know the story, right? Right. I mean, the comedian who's a mass hero, is killed. It opens with him being killed. 
Rorschach, who is one of the masked heroes who continues to be a masked hero, is trying to figure out what's going on. You know, it's just like, it can't be a, com- a coincidence that the comedian gets killed. Right. And, and he sets about trying to solve. So it's it's a great, like, one of the reasons, one of the things that makes a good novel is it is it grabs you in the beginning. Yes. There's something that happens in the beginning and you go, okay, I get it. Comedian's killed. There are all these masked heroes. There's this guy who's very mysterious and feels like there's something bigger going on that he needs to figure out. Okay, I'm in. I'll, I'll go along for this ride, you know. At its heart, Watchmen is a murder mystery. Yeah. But it's one of those murder mysteries where the the, the further they dig into it, the bigger the story gets. Right. It's the spark that, that triggers the, the beginning of the novel. What we find out, and, and we've covered some of this in previous episodes, one of the themes that you start to see is this idea of when when you think about it, uh, superheroes are vigilantes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like they were appointed by elected officials and trained and, yeah. you know, they're governed by elected officials. They're basically vigilantes, right? Mm-hmm. There's always this tension, this natural tension between society who wants to be saved and wants to be kept safe and society who doesn't want, you know, whatever it is that's trying to save them to end up being more harm than good. They don't want the cure to be worse than the disease. Right. Very topical, by the way. We're recording this in 2020. So there's this understandable natural tendency for there to be a tension between the two. This one's no different. So I'm not going to do a lot of backstory here. But uh, the uh, Watchmen is based on back in the early 20th century. There were some people who decided and maybe they had some natural abilities. Maybe they had some unusual abilities. But they decided to put on costumes and fight crime. (laughs) You know, as often happens in comic universes, some things got out of hand, mistakes were made, and, you know, society, like, wanted to clamp down, so it was made illegal unless it could be put under the control of the government. Yes. So the comedian happens to be one of the superheroes who are one of the masked... I want to call them masked heroes. All of our other episodes, I want to call them superheroes because... There's some kind of natural, like, either natural or there was a mutant ability or, you know, they experienced some sort of moment bitten by a spider, whatever. But a lot of these guys were just, like, regular people who decided, I want to do something about this. I see a lot, like Rorschach, the opening, you know, Rorschach's journal. He looks down and he sees all of this, all of these problems. He's like, I think I can help solve these problems. Masked Heroes is a perfectly good definition of these characters so yeah back in the, the one of the neat things about this is there's a backstory to the backstory <laughs> right so there's in the early 20th century they're you know mid early to mid 20th century they're outlawed and then the government figures out a way to sort of control some of them the comedian's one of the ones that decides to go ahead and allow the government to control him but in a in a way that's like um Collateral damage is not really seen as a bad thing. Right. <laughs> in terms of the comedian. <laughs> but then he gets murdered, or we suspect it's a murder at the at the in the very first in the very few first few pages of the first issue. And of course, Rorschach, who operates by his own he operates by his own rules outside the law. <laughs> He's a wild He's trying guy. to figure out is somebody killing masked heroes on purpose or what, what exactly is going on? Then, of course, there's a big funeral, and the funeral scene is one of the iconic scenes in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's just pretty awesome. They do a really good job. The art 
is really cool. Um, and we're introduced to Dr. Manhattan and we get this whole history of the masked heroes. Dr. Manhattan's interesting <laughs> because he's one of the ones who does have, you know, a, a tremendous superpower. It's almost like he's almost like a godlike person. He's the game changer. <laughs> he is. And he comes under the control of the government. And I use the word control loosely because for whatever reason, which we may find out later, he decides that he's, he's going to serve the best interests of the United States in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And the best interests of the United States of America in the 1960s, first of all, is to try to keep Kennedy from being assassinated, (laughs) which he's unable to do. Right. Which really bumps him out. Yeah. The other thing though, is, to win, in air quotes, the Vietnam War, which he's successful at. So you get, yeah, you know, combined with all the other cool things about this story, you get this alternate history, which I love. I love alternate. Maybe that was one of the reasons you were, you thought this would be a good one for me, because I've loved alternate history for a long time, you know? That's po- honestly, that's probably what it was, because we've, ta- we've yeah. talked about that extensively. Yeah. So we're now in the 80s. We're in the mid-80s in, in a United States... W- that did not lose the Vietnam War. And it's still, it's still fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, you and I did talk about that. We may have talked about it on one of our whiskey talking episodes where it's like, Vietnam was destined to fuck us up no matter what, whether we won, didn't win, whatever. So we get the, in the second issue, we get the history of the masked heroes. Third issue, we get this weird, it's funny because in order... This is a weird rapey sort of thing because <laughs> Dr. Manhattan befriends this uh, the daughter of one of the old time heroes. And at the time that he befriends her, she's like 14 or 15. She's I think she's 16. She's 16 or 17, but that's that that still doesn't matter. Well, he met her when she was 14 or 15. The moment that he makes out with her, I tried to do the math. When he first makes out with her, I think she's like 16. Yeah. And I'm like I, oh, that, but you do get this sense that he, like, when you can phase, he reminds me of five in a way from the Umbrella Academy. Yeah. (laughs) He can phase through time. He can phase through space, right? And when you can phase through time and space and you see the universe and time and everything is like this construct of nothing really matters. So he's kind of amoral in that sense. Yet he still is loyal to the United States up until a point, right? But anyway, so he befriends this girl. Fortunately for us, by the time they're shacking up, she is of age. (laughs) She's like 20 or 19 or 20 years old. She's old enough to keep it from being creepy. Of course, he makes it creepy because he has a lot of science-y things to do. (laughs) And, you know, those of you out there who have been married a while... You'll understand this <laughs> from Dr. Manhattan, right? He's got work to do. He's got things to do. But his wife has certain needs, right? And maybe he feels like she may have certain fantasies. So he figures out a way. And I mean, if you can phase through time and space and you can do godlike things, why not take advantage of it? Get a little work done in the lab while you create... I don't know, <laughs> multiple versions of yourself to go, you know, be with your wife and take care of her needs in the bedroom. 
And, you know, if you're thinking like a man, as it seems like this guy does very, fairly frequently, you yeah. would make multiple versions of yourself to go take care of your wife in the bedroom. And it gets real weird, and it freaks her out, and she leaves him. The man can see gluinos and tachyon particles, but he can't figure out women. Right? So what hope do we have? <laughs> you might think I'm being gratuitous by describing the weird threesome where Dr. Manhattan makes two versions of himself to go sleep with his wife mm. while he's doing work in the lab. I'm not being gratuitous. It's an important pivotal point in the story because she leaves him. And when she leaves him, like right at the same time, he has to go do an interview on this show where it's revealed that he may be causing cancer for people that he's close to. It's kind of an ambush when he goes on to this talk show. <laughs> but between her leaving her and him getting ambushed on this talk show, he just kind of freaks out and uh, transports himself to Mars. <laughs> people on Earth don't necessarily know he went to Mars. They just think he disappeared. And because he disappeared, he was even more than nuclear weapons because once we got nuclear weapons, Russia got nuclear weapons. Soviet Union got nuclear weapons, right? So there was like this balance of power. Dr. Manhattan made it so that the United States had ultimate power because it didn't matter if you shot nuclear weapons, he could stop your nuclear weapons and like sling some back at you, right? He was the nuclear deterrent. Yeah, yeah, he was the nuclear deterrent and the, you know, the not mutually assured destruction, but, you know, unilaterally assured destruction. <laughs> but he left. Yeah. And when he left... Uh, the Soviets invade Afghanistan, and there's this whole wonderful side story. It's not, you know, it's almost like hard to tell the difference between a side story and a mainstream story, but there's this newsstand that's kind of like, you know, if Rorschach is sort of like the Greek chorus, <laughs> he's a character in the story, so he does things to move the plot forward. Mm -hmm. Like the Greek chorus doesn't, like the classical Greek chorus doesn't do anything to move the story forward. But Rorschach, with his journal, mm -hmm. kind of serves a little bit as the Greek chorus. But I think truly the Greek chorus is probably the newsstand yes. uh, vendor. <laughs> the guy selling the newspapers, right? So he's the guy that gives you the uh, overarching context of the story. And with his little buddy sitting there reading the comic book, uh, what's it called? Black Freighter? Yeah, so his little buddy sitting there reading the Black Freighter comic book, right? And the newsstand guy is like giving you the broader context of what's going on in the world while the little guy's reading the Black Freighter. So, so what I love, again, one of Time Magazine's 100 best novels <laughs> and the brilliance of how they use the news vendor mm -hmm. as sort of the Greek chorus that gives you the broader context of everything that's going on. So it's not just not just about Rorschach. It's not just about the comedian getting killed. It's not just about Dr. Manhattan and his girlfriend leaving him. It's not just about the masked heroes and like the tension between society. There's a broader context of potential nuclear war and what's going on. And it's like a, the zeitgeist of the mid-1980s, late 1980s. It just captures it all. One of the, one of the, the best aspects of the whole book is just how... I mean, I read, I read it periodically, and I'm like, yeah, this is this is how, this is how we all felt, <laughs> you know, this is the this is this is what the 80s were like for those of us lucky enough to survive it. 
No doubt. And the, and and it's the news vendor who gives you that broader context. And his little buddy, I keep calling him little buddy, <laughs> who's sitting there reading the, the Black Freighter comic book, to me is, if you don't get the allegorical nature of it, it's almost like... Um, the writer said, okay, this is this is allegorical, but just in case you don't get that, <laughs> here's a story about a dude on the high seas that gets attacked by pirates and is worried about his hometown being overrun by the same pirates that you will not be able to miss that that's allegorical. And that's an allegory of the story, the main story in Watchmen, which is an allegory of what's going on more generally in the world. It just keeps hitting, hitting you over the head with it, right? Louder for the folks in the back. Right. <laughs> I, can't move on. I can't move on without mentioning this, because when I got to this point in the comic, I was sitting in the lounge with my family, and uh, I said, uh, oh, by the way, I said, in case you guys ever wonder what I look like when I go to the bathroom and I sit down on the toilet and realize I forgot my phone, <laughs> this is what I look like. <laughs> in case you're wondering, it's the last page of, of issue three, and it's just Dr. Manhattan sitting on Mars on a like, little outcropping of rock. Completely alone. And the look on it, the expression on his face is just like, the fuck am I supposed to do now? <laughs> While we're on the subject of Dr. Manhattan, Dr. Manhattan's real name, John Osterman. And since we're talking about how it's layers upon layers and metaphors and allegories and all that, do you know what Osterman translates into? Flex your German a little bit. Man from the East. Close. Easter man, Easter bunny, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> there you go. It's it's Easter man. Yeah. Okay. He's he's the Christ metaphor. Ah. Okay. All right. But as for the secret history of the the Watchmen, the comic, it, it's almost as layered as as the comic itself. In the mid '80s, DC Comics had purchased a bunch of characters from this company called Carlton because Carlton had had floundering sales forever and DC knew these were good characters and Carlton wasn't getting anywhere with them. So they bought the rights to these characters. And these characters included guys like the Blue Beetle, Captain Atom, Peacemaker, Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt, and Nightshade. Oh, and the question. Smash cut a little while later, Alan Moore comes walking into managing editor Dick Giordano's office with this idea about a murder mystery around the death of a patriotic superhero. So Giordano says, here, take these guys. We want to integrate them into the DC universe anyway. So basically, Moore takes the characters, goes home, comes back with a script. Giordano starts reading it, and he's just like, uh, this is too dark. Plus, some of them die. That's not exactly integrating them into the DC universe. So how about this? Why not make them analogs of these characters? Then you can do what you want, which is what Moore did. So Peacemaker became the comedian. Captain Atom became Dr. Manhattan. Blue Beetle became Night Owl. Peter Cannon Thunderbolt became Ozymandias. The question became Rorschach. Nightshade sort of became Silk Spectre, even though she was more based on this obscure character called Phantom Lady. Now this is the part that not a lot of people outside of comic book readers know. The deal was, 
between Moore and DC that once Watchmen was out of publication, after a certain amount of time, the copyrights would fall back into their hands so they could do what they want with them from there. The problem is, Watchmen was a victim of its own success. It sold so well that DC had to figure out how to keep it out of Moore's hands, and the trade paperback was born. And to this day, the Watchmen trade paperback has never been out of print. And I can't help but wonder what he would have done with this universe beyond Watchmen, because he put an insane amount of detail into the universe. <laughs> so, so yeah, Watchmen has layers. One of the things I love about uh, Five is it does have this moment where Rorschach, we see Rorschach from the very beginning, and having read this a few times now, I recognize him. You know, he's in several scenes from the very beginning. He's he's what we call an Easter egg. Yeah, <laughs> through, yeah. Through the story. So he gets a note from the person who we realize used to be their arch enemy. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, when the first time I read this, I was like, I want to see the issues that came before this. And it's like, well, there weren't any. This is the beginning. You're you're getting in on the ground floor. It's like, no, but there's this whole backstory. And I'm like, well, no, yeah, there is, but... It's all implied and there wasn't, you know, it wasn't told in detail. You just have to, you know, infer. And we may have had it not sold so well. Um, so he gets a note uh, to come see this guy who used to be one of their arch enemies who's since retired. Um, and he goes into an alley to get his stuff. You know, he doesn't have his costume on. And he goes into the alley to put his costume on and he says, uh, as he's putting his costume on, he says putting them on I abandon my disguise and become myself free from fear or weakness or lust my coat my shoes my spotless gloves my <laughs> face which I which you know that just goes back to that whole theme I mean that's another theme that we've talked about which is the superheroes or the masked heroes or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're disguising themselves when they put on the mask. They're becoming themselves when they put on the mask. Yes. Their disguise is when they take the mask off. Yes. So turns out that it was a trap. And um, when he shows up at their arch enemy's place, the arch enemy, uh, let's just say he's a little thing I like to call dead. <laughs> and the cops descend upon the apartment and they trap Rorschach. Rorschach gets arrested and the entire sixth chapter uh, we find out Rorschach's origin story which is one of the darkest origin stories. I mean you might think Batman you know Bruce Wayne who basically led a charmed life up until his parents got murdered in front of him and then he probably and then he inherited their their fortune um (laughs) You know, but he was mad, understandably angry, Bruce Wayne was, about his parents being murdered. But, you know, I'm not saying the money makes the pain go away, <laughs> but, you know, uh, Rorschach had a much more dark origin story. Let's just say he's not a model prisoner, but everybody's interested in what makes him tick. So they put one of their best shrinks on it. Don't forget... Rorschach isn't trapped in prison with all of them. They're trapped in prison with him. The following is from the notes of Dr. Malcolm Long, 
in October of 1985. Walked home along 40th Street. A black man tried to sell me a Rolex watch. When I kept walking, he started shouting, Negro! Hey, Negro! Only he didn't say Negro. I ain't saying the words. I ain't saying the N-word. Dr. Malcolm Long, by the way, is a black man. Ignored him. Bought paper. Russians claim that fighting spilling into Pakistan was accidental. Nixon says U.S. will meet continued Soviet aggression with maximum force. Inside, article on nuclear alert procedure. It says that any dead family members should be wrapped in plastic garbage sacks and placed outside for collection. Home. Gloria reminded me that Randy and Diana were coming tonight. Looked cross when I confessed I'd forgotten. We dressed for dinner in silence. Dinner didn't go very well. Diana remembered that their babysitter had to be home earlier, and they left soon after dinner. Gloria went into the bedroom. I followed her. She walked out again into the hall. I sat on the bed. She came in wearing her coat, subjected me to a lot of crude sexual insults, went out. The front door slammed. Why do we argue? Life is so fragile. A successful virus clinging to a speck of mud, suspended in endless nothing. Next week, I could be putting her into a garbage sack, placing her outside for collection. I sat on the bed. I looked at the Rorschach blot. I tried to pretend it looked like a spreading tree or shadows pooled beneath it, but it didn't. It looked more like a dead cat I'd once found. The fat, glistening grubs writhing blindly, squirming, frantically tunneling away from the light. But even that is avoiding the real horror. The horror is this. In the end, it is simply a picture of empty, meaningless blackness. We are alone. There is nothing else. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. You've been listening to We've Got Issues. We've Got Issues is written and produced by Paul Schultz and Steve Vinson. Copyright Big Broccoli Studios. Music by Eric Fulmer. For more by Big Broccoli Studios, go to www.bigbroccolistudios.com.